Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As they went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. My district superintendent kept saying to me, if you'll do this schooling really well and pastor these two little churches on the weekend, when you graduate from seminary, you'll have something good offered to you. That turned out to be Minister of Evangelism at the Memorial Drive United Methodist Church in Houston. I was told before we ever saw the church that it was a fast-growing church. It was begun in a schoolhouse. Now they had the first unit of their building, but it was in an area of Houston that was just spreading rapidly out the not-yet-open Interstate 10 going towards San Antonio. But in seven short years, they had received an average of 200 new members a year. We're now 1,400 strong. And that all the senior minister would expect from me was to get 300 the next year. 300 in one year. Wow. I couldn't imagine that. I'd grown up in a very small little Methodist church, 150 years old, that had only 300 members. To get 300 in one year? Wow. Someone said to me, you know, evangelism is about selling. A person who can sell automobiles can sell refrigerators, can sell whatever. You need to go to sales meetings and learn how to close the deal. I went to the music theater out in Houston one day for an American sales master's meeting, and I remember one fellow walking out onto the stage to speak, straightening his cufflinks as he walked. He looked out at this group and said, there are 2,000 of you here today. My guess would be there are about 1,980 clerks and maybe 20 people who know how to sell. You know what a clerk is? Somebody who works in a store, you walk up and say, do you have this? I have that. How much is it? $7.95? I'll take it. A salesman is a person who has to help a person move from here to there. Make a decision. I remember they're saying that you can waste time. You have to help people move toward closure. Move toward closure. They said a car salesman knows. Get the wife in the car. Get her in the car. Let her smell the car. She's going to make the decision. Let her smell it. But if she starts then saying, do you have this in black? And you say, yes. Do you have this in white? Yes. Do you have this in silver? Yes. She's going to find a color you don't have. So the way you help move her along is when she says, do you have a white one like this? Ask, would you buy a white one? Would you buy a white one? Then she's either about to buy a car or move along. One fellow said, you know, there's an old insurance salesman of mine who starved to death working his old prospect list. The salespeople think the greatest response to their pitch is yes, and the worst is no. But that isn't true. The worst is maybe. Because that keeps you going back and going back and going back and you're selling nothing. 
As I read this story, I thought about that because I really believe as Jesus walked along the sea and it said to Andrew, Come, Peter, come. James, John, and they'd kept fishing, he would have kept walking. If they'd kept fishing, he would have kept walking and find somebody else. Somebody who'll say yes. Every week I pray, God help me find people who say yes. Yes to professing faith in Christ. Yes to becoming a part of Boston Avenue United Methodist Church. Help me find people who will say yes. Let's look at this story. First of all, it says, after John was arrested. I don't think that's a good translation. Because the verb here is emphasizing what Herod Antipas could do to John. Herod Antipas said, put him in prison. And they put him in prison. Later, Herod Antipas would say, cut off his head. They cut off his head. This verb is what scholars call the divine passive. The actor in this verb, not John, not here at Antipas, it's God. The verb in Greek literally is, after John was handed over. After John was handed over. In John's Gospel, there will be four times when he speaks of Jesus as being handed over. Same verb. Same verb. John is handed over to you. What will you do with him? Jesus is handed over to you. What will you do to him? 2010 is handed over to you. What will you do with this new year? As we've moved into a new decade, there were lots of magazine articles, lots of newspaper articles at the end of the old, beginning of the new, Remembering, remembering, good times, bad times. One of them was remembering a television program that was begun four decades ago in 1970. Remember the Civilization series? It was produced by the BBC. But our PBS picked it up. I'm sure it was on here in Oklahoma. It was down in Texas. There were not so many choices back in those days. Who would have imagined you could have 13 weeks of the history of Western civilization in prime time. Sir Kenneth Clark was the moderator of the series. He's deceased now. David Attenborough is still living. He was a creative genius behind the program. David Attenborough said, I just came up with the idea. In 13 weeks of prime time television, could we show the most beautiful, wonderful things that Western civilization has produced in the last thousand years? I was a history major in undergraduate school. One of my favorite courses was the history of Western civilization. It was taught by Dr. Bruno Strauss, who along with his wife was forced out of their professorships at the University of Berlin because they were Jews. They ended up teaching at Centenary College in Shreveport, Louisiana. His teaching Western civilization was really amazing. So, just a few years later, here was the television program, and I was watching these things that I was sure I would never see, many of which I have now seen. David's, Michelangelo's David Boy. Gail and I have been there again and again to stand and look at this magnificent work out of one piece of white marble. You could create something that looks like the David Boy. The Sistine Chapel. 
to see what Michelangelo did there. The first time I walked into the Sistine Chapel, it looked like somebody who has tattooing all over them. You know, it was so busy, busy, busy. And you have to stand and, and watch and look. And gradually this separates itself from something else. But the walls and the ceiling are covered with paintings. God reaching out to Adam, you remember. Well, some of the great churches... Sir Kenneth Clark stood outside Paris and said, If everyone in the world could spend one day a year at the cathedral at Chartres, the world would be a different place. We've been there twice. To hear the stained glass windows described, the carvings in the stone, to see the magnificent ceilings in the high altar. Yeah, civilization. But Sir Kenneth Clark reminded us that Civilization is so fragile. Like thin ice, he said, we can break through so easily. You've been watching the pictures from Haiti? So many wonderful things are being done there by medical people, by social workers, by, by chaplains of all kinds, uh, nurses. And, uh, it's amazing the good that's being done. But we've also seen pictures of a few with clubs in hands and sticks where the young drive away the old and the very young, where the strong beat and push away those who are weaker, where men can push just by brute strength women and children away while they are fed and get water to drink. How thin that veneer, how fragile that of civilization, how close we are always to chaos and destruction as opposed to that which is good. God hands over 2010 to you and me. Uh, what will we do? Number two, the time is fulfilled. I've reminded you that in Greek there are two words for time. The Greeks were marvelous folks in the way they... You remember, they had several different words for love to help you know what kind of love they're talking about. Eros, which is physical attraction. Philios, which is friendship. For sororities, fraternities, and so on. And then there's agape, which is such a different word. But all of them translated love in English. Different in Greek. Same with time in Greek. One is the word chronos. The Swiss have had a reputation for making these wonderful watches. Before the digital watches came along, the Swiss had so perfected their art that in a tiny little watch on a person's wrist, there was a little weight inside that kept the watch wound just by your normal activity every day. And little wheels spinning inside could keep time, missing only a few seconds in 31 days and nights. So accurate, they called them chronometers, from the Greek word chronos, time. What time is it? But the other word is kairos in Greek. What time is it? What, what special moment this is that God is willing to do something extra special in this kairos moment. That's the word here. The time is fulfilled. In May, Gail and I were in Berlin, I've told you. They were already preparing their celebration, the 20th anniversary of the fall of the wall. The wall came down in the fall of 1989, as you recall. We were there in 1988 when the wall was still up, when the communist soldiers still marched just inside the wall with huge German shepherds and Doberman pinchers. In 1989, the wall went down. We've been back twice since then.
It's amazing what the Germans have done with their city. And they were planning this celebration 20 years later. But do you remember some of the events leading up to 1989? Of course, there was Gorbachev and President Reagan. President Reagan going into the city of Berlin and saying, Mr. Gorbachev, take down this wall, and so on. You remember? Up in Poland, in Gdansk, Lech Walesa and those who worked in the labor unions up there were beginning to, to exert themselves. So you had the political situation from the United States to Moscow. You had the labor unions uh, clamoring for greater rights and greater benefits for workers and so on. But you also had people of prayer who didn't know anything else to do but ask God to help them. Maybe God has finally had it with communism here. They thought maybe, maybe a new day is dawning. How many would be willing to come one night a week and light a candle and say a prayer that God's going to do something? How many? St. Nicholas Church in Leipzig said, we're going to come and light candles and say prayers that God is about to do something dramatic. First week they had a dozen. Second week they had 25. The fourth week they had a hundred. Six months later they were having a thousand. And the week before the wall came down, 70,000 people, 70,000 came to St. Nicholas Church in Leipzig and covered a major part of the city to light a candle and say a prayer that the time has come. The time has come when God is about to do something, a new thing. Okay. Number three, the kingdom has come near. The kingdom has come near. When Dr. Brandon Scott was here giving our Barton Clinton Gordy presentations, he said that he's worked an entire adult lifetime on the parables of Jesus. Just the parables of Jesus. And he said, I'm convinced that every parable we have is about the kingdom of God. Every parable is something about the kingdom of God. And so Dr. Scott's latest book is Reimagining the World. What would the world look like if we took God's kingship seriously? If we took our role as willing subjects seriously? If we saw the Almighty as Abba, our Father, and every other person as brother or sister, what would the world look like? Just before Advent began in the U.S. Catholic magazine, one of the writers was saying, there are lots of Americans who go to churches where they talk most of all about the rapture and who's going to get left behind and act pretty gleeful about how many are going to get left behind. But that's not where we Catholics are, he said. All of those people are asking the question every week, what have we to fear? And we Catholics are asking, what have we to hope? That's where we are at Boston Avenue, are we not? What have we to hope? Not what have we to fear, but what have we to hope when the kingdom of God comes near in any life, in any city, in any nation, in God's whole world? Dr. Stanley Harvas, who teaches at Duke, Dr. Kroll's alma mater, has written that there are so many churches now that build themselves on surveys. They go into the shopping malls and ask, you want to go to church where you can drink coffee in the sanctuary? We're it. You want to go to church where you can have a donut while you sit in church? Hey, we're it. Want us to feed you breakfast? We'll feed you breakfast. Want to stay for lunch? We'll feed you lunch. Tell us what you want. 
You want to come in cutoffs? Want to come in undershirt, t-shirts, whatever? Come to our place. You're welcome there. He said these places are so often selling self-actualization, the same kind of self-help books. It's all about me. It's all about me. And we Methodists don't sell that very well, he said, because we're not about self-actualization. We're about salvation, and that's a different thing. We're about how people are rightly related to God through God's grace. It's not about us. It's about him. And only when we know it's all about God that we understand God's great love for us that lets us be a part of the purposes and the will of God, as our choir sang so wonderfully well a few minutes ago. The purposes of God. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Oh, Master, let me walk with thee, they sang. Okay, number four. Number four, repent and believe the good news. How about you, Andrew? How about you, Simon? How about you, James? How about you, John? I was reading an obituary column a couple of weeks ago and saw that Meep Bees had died. Meep Bees. You know that name? The name shows up in Anne Frank's diary. When Meet Bees was 23, she went to work for a little spice company in Amsterdam owned by a man named Otto Frank. Nine years later, Meep was still working for this little spice company. And the owner, Otto Frank, said, the Nazis are here. They're here, right down the street. They're coming for us. We've been planning. We've arranged our apartment so that we think we can hide. Will you feed us? And Meep said, I will. She knew that food was rationed. This was 1942. There was no way she could get enough food for all those people without help. So she consulted the Dutch underground. She simply said, I know where some Jews are hiding. They must be fed. And they got her extra ration cards. She said, I knew I couldn't go to one grocery store and buy all that food. Somebody would be suspicious. So in the hottest days of August and the coldest days of January, she rode her bicycle from neighborhood to neighborhood to neighborhood, buying a small bag of groceries in one and a small bag in another. When she could, she'd stick a magazine or a newspaper inside, hide the food, and go away. And Frank kept a diary. She said, we never seem to be far from Meek's mind. She always seems to be thinking of us. And then they were betrayed. The Nazis came again. They put them on a train to Auschwitz. And when the Russians had crossed the Vistula River and were sweeping across Poland, they were relocated to Bergen-Belsen. It was on our list last May. Bergen-Belsen in western part of Germany. Two weeks before the Allied forces got there, and Frank died. But on the day they were arrested, Meep had rushed in right after the authorities to see if there was anything of value. She found Anne's diary. She said she never read a word. Even teenagers deserve privacy. She said she saved it for Anne to come home. She didn't, didn't come home, but the father did. He survived. She gave Otto the diary. It is sold more than anything else written by a Holocaust victim or survivor since. The single book. 
Someone said to me, how, how did you decide to do that? You must have known that if they had caught you, you would have been on that train to Auschwitz. And she said, Otto Frank looked me in the eyes and said, they're coming for us. Will you feed us? And I said, of course, I will. <laughs>